our bulletin each week, we put uh, different questions from this new city catechism. If you've never used those, it's just question and answer of great big ideas that we see in the Bible. And it's a helpful way to kind of think through uh, just some big theological truths and how to teach them to your kids and how to think about it together. And if you read through the new city catechism, the very first question in it says, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is we're not our own. We belong to God. We're not our own and we belong to God. Or if you take uh, the Westminster Catechism that goes back much older, much larger, it has a lot more questions in it. But the first question is very similar. It says, what is the chief end of man? And it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so both of them in the very first question kind of summarizes who we are and what we're made for. We're made to glorify God. We're made to serve him. We're not our own. We belong to God. We're created to know and love God and then love others out of that. But that's who we are at the very central of what God's created us to be. And so I want to ask you a question. If you believe that with that in mind, if we're, if we're professing that that's true, that we're made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I want you just to think about this for a second. How much of what you do in your life day to day would you say is serving God or, or, or use the language of the Westminster Catechism is glorifying God, showing people what God is like. If you just thought through your day, how would you divide that out? What kind of categories would you have? Are there things that you'd be doing and you go, yes, I think I'm definitely glorifying God when I'm doing X. Or are there things that you would say, yeah, I definitely know I blow it at different times and I'm not glorifying God when I do X, whatever that may be. And I want you just to think about that for a second and what that looks like. Maybe there's some things in your life you go, well, I don't really know. Maybe they're kind of neutral. I don't know what category I would put them in. But if you started to think about that for a second, I want you to just to think, what would you say? What percentage of your life and what you're saying and what you're doing would you say comes to that end of glorifying God, of making much of him, of showing people what he's like? But then I want to ask you a second question as you're thinking about that. Right? If you started to have categories and you start to think through that in your mind, and what would that look like? I then want to ask you this one. How do you know? How do you differentiate? What are things that glorify God that show what he's like? And how do you know that? What is kingdom focus that is making much of God and who he is and what he's created and designed us to be that makes much of God's kingdom? And what doesn't? And how do you differentiate between those two things? And I ask that question because we're in the middle of Jesus talking in a whole bunch of parables about the kingdom of God. And we started this last week. We've been saying as we're moving through Jesus's life, we're chronologically looking at it, kind of looking at all four gospels, but we're following the timeline of straight through his life. And we're right in the middle of it. We're about a year and a half, year and three quarters into his life. And he's really, really popular. And he begins to speak in these parables. And part of the reason is people are missing what he's saying and they're trying to use them and they just want to see miracles. They want to make Jesus be a political figure. And so he starts to speak in these, these short little stories that have a deep spiritual meaning underneath them to get people to think, to really think about what it means to be in God's kingdom, what it really looks like to glorify God in the ways we live, to trust him in all things. And so he starts to tell these stories that tell us a whole lot about what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And so I want you just to keep that in mind of what does it look like to glorify him? If that's what we're made for, what does that look like? And I want us to think as we look at several of these parables together, I just read several of them. We're going to look at them together. And this is the way I want us to think about it. There's something that's in the background and even something Jesus says in the very first parable that I just read to you that I think is pointing us to the ways in which we miss living in the fullness of God's kingdom. 
And it's right there in the parable and the way he says it. And we'll talk about that. So I want us first to consider what is it? What is one of the ways that he's talking about here that we miss living in God's kingdom? We miss the fullness of what God's designed us to be. But then secondly, as we look at the rest of these parables, I want us to think about how do we really grow in that? How do we truly honor him and we glorify him with our lives and everything that we do? Because I think he tells us a lot of things that helps us with that. And so very simply, the first question is just how do we miss it? And then the second one is how do we guard against that? How do we grow up into it? And so let's start with that first question. How can we miss the fullness of what God has for us in his kingdom? And so I want us just to look at that very first parable that he tells there, kind of the story. uh, Oftentimes the heading in your Bible might say the parable of the weeds. And it talks about a guy who has, uh, who, who's sowing seeds in his field, it says in verse 24. But when his men were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then they went away. And when the plants came up that bore grain, then weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master came and said to him, Master, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then do you have weeds? And he says, The enemy has done this. And so the servants asked, Do you want us to go and gather them? Get rid of the weeds. And he says, No, no, no. And lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together. And then when harvest comes, we'll sort it out. Right? That's what he says in the story. And I want you to think about what he's saying. A parable is a a short story that takes something that the people would have known. And so remember, this is a farming society. Jesus starts talking about growing wheat and how weeds get entangled in it. And what everybody would have known what he was talking about. He was using something that everybody in his immediate audience would know. Grain was being grown everywhere. And if you weren't directly related to it, you were seeing it, you were around it, you knew that was happening. It was an important crop in Israel at the time. And when they planted grain, what would happen is these weeds would get caught up in it. And actually the word that Jesus used seems to suggest he's talking about a specific weed. But the weed that gets caught up and grows with it looks just like the grain. It's a long stalk that's got a head on it and it looks just like it and it grows up in the middle of it and it's so hard to tell until it gets mature if it's a weed or not. The grain actually has the the, the grain at the top of it that you take out to make the things that you're going to make from it, make bread and the things that they needed. But the other didn't. It had no fruit, basically. It was just the stalk and it was empty at the top. But it was really hard to differentiate. And so when they say, do you want us to go and rip out all the weeds? And he goes, no, no, no. You might actually take some of the grain with it, so don't do that. And he tells this story, right? And he gives this, and the people would understand the big idea of the farming part anyway. But this is the way his parables were. They had a deeper spiritual meaning. And if you weren't looking for it, and you were just there thinking this is a political rally, or you were just there to maybe see Jesus do a miracle, you might miss what he's saying. But it tells us a little later, in verse 36, when the crowds left... They came to Jesus and they asked him, what is this parable of the weeds about? What are you trying to teach us? And so he starts to unfold it for him. And look at what he says. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Just so we're clear, the son of man is Jesus. He always uses that term for himself. It goes back to the Old Testament. It's kind of one of his favorite terms to refer to himself. And so when you see that in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about himself. And so it says, the good seed, the one who sows the good seed is me, is the son of man. And then he says, The field is the world and the good seed is the son of the kingdom and the weeds are the son of the evil one and the enemy sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and he will gather out of his kingdom 
all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. And so he says this parable is about people growing up in their life in the world and whether they're trusting me or they're not. And he divides it. He says there's the weeds and there's the grain and the grain are the sons of the kingdom, the ones that are trusting in Jesus, right? The ones that kind of would put themselves in the kingdom in the way that Jesus was explaining it when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago. If you're with us, Jesus starts with a Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed uh, are those that are poor in spirit. And he starts to teach in a way that's not the way people were thinking about his kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are merciful and blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he's talking about all these heart issues. And he says, this is the way that you enter into my kingdom. And the way that you enter into God's kingdom is by recognizing poor in spirit, a realistic picture of who you are and that you desperately need God's grace in your life. And that's the way he was teaching and what he was telling them and what he was bringing them to. And so when he starts to begin to tell these other stories right on the heels of the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the soils, the one that truly takes and hears God's word and understands it is the person who says, I am in desperate need. I need God's grace in my life to come and do for me what I can't do for myself. And so he starts to talk about the son of man and who are the sons of the son of man. And it's those that are putting their trust in Jesus. They're seeing the heart issue that's underneath. And what he tells, though, is he says at the end of the age, they will be divided. And I want you to see the seriousness of what Jesus is saying in these parables, because he's saying there's really only two options. There's those that are the weeds and there's those that are of the grain, the good seeds, the ones that have found the good soil and they've heard what I've said and they've taken it to heart and they begin to bear much fruit. That's what he said last week in the parable of the soils. He's continuing in that today, right? The, the grain is the one that has the fruit it's taken into the ground and it's grown up and that's the picture now when we see all of that we miss that when we miss the heart of what he's saying and we make it something else and if i were to distill that down i'm going to give you one avenue in which this takes place but i want to still this down to the heart that's underneath it the way in which we miss what jesus is saying instead of seeing what god has done for us in jesus what he has done and his grace given to us we make it all about us we take what Jesus is saying and we go, oh, well, I will follow these to the best of my ability. And if I do them really well, then God will save me. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that understand that they cannot save themselves. Blessed are those that mourn over their sin, their own sin and the sin of the world. And they recognize they can't do it. But when we miss that and we put ourselves right back in the center of the world, instead of God being the center of the world, we make it all about us. And then when we do, we start to follow in the way that the world works. And I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here, because this is a really important connection on how we miss God's kingdom day to day, living it out in our lives. And so go back to that first parable he tells, 24 to 30. He's talking about the seeds and planting them. And all of a sudden the weeds come up and his servants come to him and they say, hey, there's weeds in your, your crop, right? They say that. And he says, the enemy's done this, verse 28. But then they say, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to go and tear all the weeds out? And what does Jesus say? He says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Just let it continue to grow. And at the end of the time, when we harvest, we'll then sort it out. And I want you to think about who he's talking to and what's going on in the way they're coming to Jesus. At this point in Jesus's ministry, they think he is a politician, 
They think he's a revolutionary. They think he's going to overthrow the government and come follow me. And we're going to overthrow Rome and we're going to set up this kingdom right here and right now. And that's the way they want to think. It's the way they want to hear everything. And so I think when Jesus is telling this parable, he's really talking about the people around him. They're the ones that are going, hey, should we go uproot the weeds and get rid of them right now? And he goes, no, don't do that. In doing that, you may uproot some of the grain too. So don't do that. And I think what Jesus is pointing them to is he's saying, that's not the way my kingdom comes. My kingdom doesn't come by force, right? That's exactly his whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. He was correcting the way they were misunderstanding so many of those things. They're thinking overthrow. They're thinking power. They're thinking regime change. And he's going, it's not like that. And so how did they get so far off? If that's not what Jesus is saying, and it's not what he's saying, and he's correcting them over and over, why do they keep thinking that it looks like this? And I think the answer is like this. They're wanting to be part of the kingdom of God and what Jesus is saying, but the only way they can conceive it coming is the way the world works. They're taking the kingdom of the world and the way we see the world working with sinful, broken people. And they're superimposing it over what Jesus is trying to do. And they're going, well, this is the way it's going to come. This is all I've ever known. Governments rise and fall by people taking it with power. We've got to do the same thing. And Jesus is going, my kingdom is not like that. I was rereading a book this week that I read years ago by a guy named John Yoder. And he's now passed away, but he was a theologian, very thoughtful guy. And he wrote a book called The Politics of Jesus. And it's not necessarily a political book. It's more thinking of like what Jesus was saying about who he is as Messiah and what that means. And I love in this book the way he describes it. He says, the kingdoms of the world, the political systems that we live in and amongst work like this. It's power over others. It's making people do things. It's taking control. Right. We see it all around the world right now. Right. Countries invading other countries. We see that with Russia and, uh, and Ukraine right now. We're going to come in and we're going to take over. We're going to make this ours. And this is the way we're going to expand our kingdom. And this is what it looks like. Power over others. But what Yoder says, and I think he's right, is that Jesus comes and he says, no, no, no. My kingdom comes power under. It's not over people. I've come not to be served, but to serve. I've come to lay down my life as a ransom for many. I've come to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And it's not power over, but it's power under. And he starts to correct them and tell them this at every turn. And if you read closely in the Gospels, you'll see this happen over and over. It happens in a whole bunch of different spots. As Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're thinking it comes by power over others. And he keeps going, no, 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 it's not going to work that way. And so feeding of the 5,000, he feeds the 5,000 and it gets to the end. And you know what happens? It says all the people came and they were seeking to make him king. They're like, let's go. Revolution, let's go, Jesus. And you know what it says? He slipped away from him and he got away by himself. He goes away and he fasts and he prays. He's like, that's not how this is working. And he slips out and he goes away. Or a little later, they go into the town uh, of Samaritans and they're walking through. And this is getting closer to the last of Jesus' life. And they reject him. And you know what James and John say? They hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on these people? And he goes, no. He rebukes them and he goes, that's, that's not how this is working. That's not the way my kingdom is coming. But it happens over and over again. 
when they come to arrest Jesus on the night before he will lay down his life on the cross. You know what happens He's in the Garden of Gethsemane? Judas betrays him and shows up and then there he is and he goes over and he kisses him and this is him and the soldiers move in. Do you know what happens in that story? What does Peter do? Rips out a sword and starts swinging it. It's like, ah, and cuts a guy's ear off. He says, no, this isn't happening. And what does Jesus say? He says, enough. Put that away. That's not the way this works. And actually he goes over, he tells Peter to put it away and he heals the Roman soldier that's there to arrest him and he heals his ear. And everybody's like, what is this? And he's like, no, 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 it's supposed to happen this way. Or then he goes and stands before Pilate. Right? Pilate, the man that's the Roman ruler that has the authority to put him to death. And he stands before Pilate and you know what Pilate says to him? Are you the king of the Jews? He's like, that's what they're saying. That's the charge against you. Are you the king of the Jews? And what Pilate's trying to get at is, are you a threat to my power? Are you a threat to Rome? Do I need to put you to death? And you know what Jesus says? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And he tells them, you don't have any power over me. And, and Pilate is like, whoa, what is happening? But in every turn, what they're trying to do is they're trying to put it in terms of the way the world sees change come. The way the world sees that we make things happen. It's power over others. And Jesus says, my kingdom's not like that. It's not by force. It's by grace. It's by sacrificial love. I've come to lay down my life and do for you what you could never do for yourselves. And it doesn't look like that. And despite everyone continuing to push on him and pull him into these different things, he goes, no, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the meek. They're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. And he keeps pushing away and he goes, that's not the way this works. And I say that and I spend that time on it. You go, okay, that's a lot of the background of what's happening in Jesus' day. And that's one avenue in which, in which they're missing the kingdom. Okay, great. History lesson. I kind of see that, see how those things are happening in the gospel. But here's what I want you to consider. The same thing's happening today. It's no different. We live in the same context in a whole lot of ways. We're surrounded by a disconnect from the gospel in the church. And we've bought into the lie that somehow we can bring gospel fruit by power over others rather than showing what Jesus is like. And it's everywhere. We live in a time right now that is so divided, so divided politically, so divided culturally, so divided in all these ways. And what ends up happening is everyone starts to look just like they looked in Jesus day. People who are professing to be believers. And what happens is we're so inundated with the kingdom of the world and this idea that it comes from power over and against others that we've bought into the lie that we can somehow bring the fruit of the gospel by things that are the exact opposite of what Jesus is like. That cannot work. That's insanity. I mean, think about it, how crazy it is to be like, I'm going to go tell people how great Jesus is by yelling and screaming at them and telling them how they're idiots. What? It may not be that we're literally saying, let's kill them and bind them up and bring down fire on them, but we're acting in the same way. We do the same thing. 
And we end up getting inundated into the way the world works. But here's my question. Is that how Jesus says change comes? It's not. He tells us over and over and over again that change comes by the power of the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Right? That's what Paul says. Paul that went into the most hostile places all over the world and he walked in, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And he never once said, we're going to round these people up and throw them out and get them and we're going to take over. He said, no, I'm going to continue to show you what God is like and I'm going to continue to tell you that it's by his grace and what he's done for us in Jesus and nothing else. And I'm going to stand firm on that. And you see that with all the disciples. And you know what happens to all of them except for John? You know what happens to the 12 apostles? They're all killed. They're all martyred for their faith, except for John. And they actually boiled him in oil alive, and he made it through that. And then he died later. But every single one of them. And they said, we're not going to fall into this power over, but we're going to be this power under. And so here's the problem. Practically, how we miss showing what God is like today. We abdicate our call to make disciples and then we start to make it into factions and go for power over against other people. I heard it said years ago, I couldn't remember who exactly said it. Talking about what happens when we combine the church's mission of making disciples with the government. I said it's like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't really do anything to the manure, but it sure screws up the ice cream. And that's what happens when we start to do the power over. And I want to make it this way. I want to make it come. And so how do we guard against that? What does he tell us here that helps us to understand, to rest in God's wisdom over what the world says, to trust what Jesus is saying and who he is. And I think he tells us some really important things in these parables. And so how do we grow in keeping and trusting who Jesus is and what he tells us over and against what the world says? So look at verses 44 and 45. He tells two short parables there. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And then verse 45, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so what's he talking about? He says the kingdom of heaven, when you understand the kingdom of heaven that comes through putting your faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done, when you get to the place of recognizing you can't do it and you're transferring your trust to Jesus and what he's done and you begin to understand his kingdom, he says when you understand it, and you know who God is, and you know what he's done for you in Jesus, you reorient everything around him. It makes no sense to take Jesus and make him your personal assistant that you may or may not listen to. If he is the God of the universe who's come to do for you what you can't do for yourself, there's nothing that makes sense except making him Lord of your life. And so in our culture, and so often we talk about praying a prayer and asking Jesus into our heart, and I'm not making light of those things, right? Recognizing that I'm a sinner and I desperately need Jesus. Confessing my sin and asking God to come and do for me what I can't do for myself. Professing that, yes, that is true, and we are in desperate need to do so. But as we do, it's not just that He's our personal Savior, He's also now Lord of our life. 
And so everything he tells us is true. And here's the really hard part. A lot of the things he says are really, really difficult in light of what the world says. And we get pushed to it and we go, oh man, what Jesus, if I do that, really? Is that going to work? And we become very pragmatic and we start to think in those terms and go, I don't know if that'll work. I don't know if it's like that. Well, like think about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about carrying, uh, going the extra mile. We've talked about this a couple times, but I'll go back to it. Jesus says, when they ask you to go one mile, go with them too. And we talked about culturally what that means is the Jews as an occupied people with the Romans over them. If a Roman soldier came to you and handed you his military pack and said, here, carry this, you had to by law carry it one mile. You had to stop what you were doing. You could be with your family. You could be at work. You could be busy and they go, carry that. And you go, yes, sir. And you pick it up and you go with them. And Jesus goes, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Instead of carrying it one mile, carry it two. Love that person. Meet them where they are and walk with them and continue to love them. And I want you to think about in light of what the world says, that sounds crazy. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Continue to show them what I'm like in the way that you love them, even when they're horrible towards you. He says, this is what God looks like. And so often we hear the things that Jesus says. And we go, I don't think that'll work. Jesus calls us to this power under. To love people in the way he's loved us. And we go, I don't know. This power over thing seems to get things done a lot faster. And so we abdicate the responsibility of following Jesus as our Lord and everything. And we go, I don't think that'll work. And we go to the other. And so the first thing is if we're truly going to follow him in all things, we reorient our lives around Jesus. He is the Lord of our life. We make him the authority. And when what he says seems like it won't work in light of what the world says, we go, I'm going to go with Jesus. And I don't know exactly how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust him and what he's told me in all things. And so that's the first thing. The second thing, look at 31 to 33. He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it had grown larger than all the garden plants, it became a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in the branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so there's a couple things he's saying there, but I want to highlight this. When he starts to tell those parables about the mustard seed and about the leaven, in both of those, he's talking about how God's kingdom is coming gradually. It's not coming by force and it starts small and then it grows. But not only does it start small and then it grows, but it grows to be far greater and more comprehensive than you can ever imagine. And he talks about that mustard seed going into the ground. And he says, but then it grows into a great tree where the birds find their perch. And it grows and it gets bigger and bigger and fuller and fuller than you can even imagine. But he says it starts really small and it takes time. And he uses these analogies of sowing seeds and what it looks like and being patient. And this is what his kingdom is, how it's coming and what it looks like. And so often we miss that, particularly in a society today that wants everything right now. 
Right? We live in an instant society. We have everything in our fingertips. We pull out our phone and I can order whatever I want and have it delivered to my door tomorrow. And we're so used to everything being instantaneous. And he says, that's not the way my kingdom comes. It's little by little. And it starts small and it grows much bigger than you can ever imagine. And so I want you to think about that in a few ways. The first one's theological. Jesus comes to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And they think it's going to be power over conquering king, overthrowing governments. And he says, I'm coming to lay down my life. I'm coming to die. And not only is he going to die, he's going to die at the hands of the government that they were hoping he would overthrow. And he's showing them that what they think is going to come one way is going to come the exact opposite and it's going to look like defeat in the beginning. That he's going to come as the suffering servant, the one sinless man for the many. One person, perfectly God, fully God and fully man, holding those things perfectly together, lives this sinless life and willingly lays his life down. And instead of overthrowing governments in one specific place, he says that seed that goes into the ground when Jesus dies is going to overthrow sin and death itself. And what they saw in those days when Jesus was crucified is the greatest defeat. And they were all like, what happened? How could this work? We thought he was the Messiah. But that seed of Jesus going into the ground and laying his life down is the thing that changed everything. And so I want you to think about it first in that way. The theological truth that this one man undoes the sin of the world by becoming sin for us, doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. I think that's why Jesus says in John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he was telling them, that's what I've come to do. And so we could think of it in that way. And what Jesus has done is he deals with sin and death for us. But the second way you can think of it is even in your own relationship with God. And what we talk about is discipleship. Or sometimes the Bible talks about a sanctification. We say here, discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life. You're not saved by having perfect obedience. You're saved by Jesus' perfect obedience. But when you put your faith in him and he saves you and he brings you into his kingdom and he gives you his spirit, he begins to change you from one degree of glory to another. And it's little by little. And it takes time. But I want you to think about how the gospel makes that possible because of what Jesus has done. The very presence of God lives in and with you. But it also frees you to be honest of where you don't measure up. You are saved by what Jesus has done for you. He loves you completely and totally and fully right now today, the second you put your faith in Him. And you know how that works in and through your your discipleship, your sanctification, growing more like God in every area? It's because when you blow it, you go, God, I have blown it. And He goes, I know. And I've taken it for you. You go, forgive me. He says, I have. And I've done it. And it frees you to be open and honest about the ways in which you're not there. But then as you experience that and you experience his grace and the way he's forgiven you, that grace changes you. And he continues to do that. And he brings you from one degree of glory to another. And when he returns, he's going to bring you fully into that. And it takes time. And it's slow. And it doesn't come by power. 
And it doesn't come by guilt and shame. It comes by experience, the grace of God and what he's done for you in Jesus. But there's a third way. It's not just in your own discipleship, but it's also in the way that you love and care for others. So often we want to just get, we get frustrated. We get frustrated with people that disagree with us or we get frustrated with people that are difficult. I want to be done with them. Sick of this. How many times do I have to have this conversation? I don't want to argue with it. I don't want to do this anymore. And there's this big thing in our culture right now. If somebody that you really disagree with and you vehemently disagree with, be done with them. If you hold that view, I will not talk to you anymore. You know, that's the exact opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's the way God treated us, we would all be hopelessly lost. But that's not how he treats us. Even when we say, God, I got this and I don't need you and I'm good. And he continues to pursue us. And he continues to love us and he continues to come to us and he continues to seek to save the lost. And he continues to call us back to himself. And the truth is, it's a slow process. And when you seek to love others in the way that Jesus loved you, recognize that it's slow and it's hard and it doesn't always come right at first. But the truth is, it doesn't come with power over. It comes with power under when you seek to love and care for people in the way that Jesus has loved and cared for you. And it's messy. It's like sowing seeds and you have to water them and you wait and you continue. And that's part of what Jesus is saying here. This is what my kingdom looks like. And it's not easy. It's not easy in the world that we live in with so much division and struggle. But there's one last thing here and we'll end with this today because it's really, really important. But it's also greatly encouraging if you understand what he's saying. Right there at the beginning when he tells that parable and he talks about the seeds growing together, the weeds and the good uh, grain growing together. And they come to him and they say to him, Jesus, they say, they ask him, why are there weeds? Did you sow weeds? What is happening? He says, the enemy has done this. And then they say, do you want us to go and gather them? And he says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Don't worry about that. He says, in the end, when we harvest it, it'll all come to light. And I want you to think about in our lives, in the world we live in right now, you are inundated with this idea to grasp the power over be done with people rip the weeds out i'm not having anything to do with them and jesus goes no just leave it and you continue to seek me and you continue to love those around you but here's the thing he tells us he says it will all work out i am the god of justice i'm the god of grace and mercy and you continue to be gracious and mercy but you don't have to worry about separating it all i will do that that's what he says in his parable, right? He says the weeds, they will be brought together and he'll bring the, the grain into his barn and the others will be burned up. And he says the angels will separate that out and you don't have to do that. Do you understand how wonderful that is? We are free to love the people that are in front of us for God's glory and he will do the rest. Your job is to continue to trust Jesus in everything. Continue to love him. Continue to show what power under looks like. Continue to call people to repentance and show them who Jesus is and be gracious and kind. And you don't have to sort the rest out. That's not your job. That's God's. 
And when I think about that and what he says here, and I think how often I want to control things and I want to get this in the right place and what if this is wrong? And he goes, I got it. Jesus is going, it's okay. I will sort it out. You love me and you be faithful and you follow me and I'll take care of the rest. And that's what his kingdom looks like. That's what we're called to look like in his kingdom. Oh, that that would be true of us. That we would take Jesus at his word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you love us beyond anything that we can imagine. We thank you that you're patient, that you pursue us, that you continue to call us. We pray that you would help us to trust you in every way. Lord, when the, the world tells us the things that work are opposite of what you tell us, when we see that your word stands true, that your love and grace shines brightly in the darkness, give us the courage to trust you. Give us the attentiveness to the movement of your spirit and the ways that you are calling us to love others for your glory and our good. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.